face on top of grace more than i've asked for more than i'm worth grace on top of grace how sweet the sound once lost now found heaven came down and grace rescued me sin and penalty at the cross you took my place with your grace on top of grace sing that again lord how you love me i don't deserve grace on top of grace more than I've asked for, more than I'm worth, grace on top of grace. Hallelujah, hallelujah, I am free from my sin and penalty. At the cross you took my place, with your grace on top of grace, with your grace on top of grace. Crashing over me, 
Rushing in to meet me here Your love is fierce Like a hurricane That I can't escape Tear it through the atmosphere Your love is fierce You cannot fail in pursuit every turn I come face to face with you like a tidal wave is crashing over me rushing in to meet me here your love is fierce like a hurricane that I can't escape Tearing through the atmosphere Your love is fierce You chase me down You seek me out How could I be lost when you have called me found? You chase me down, you seek me out. How could I be lost when you You chase me down, you seek me out. How could I be lost when you have called me found? Like a tide away. Crashing over me, rushing in to make me hear your love is fierce, like a hurricane that I can't escape. Tearing through the atmosphere, your love is fierce. Your Jesus Christ, 
many of y'all believe that this morning? Forevermore, 
you're ready to hear uh, from God's Word. Hopefully we're ready to be challenged by God's Word. And so um, as David asked, you open your book, uh, your Bibles to the book of Esther. And uh, today we're going to start a little uh, different than I normally do. And I want to go to um, Esther chapter 9, but we're going to camp out in chapter 5. But I thought I would start by reading the end of the story. Um, for those of you who've been hanging with us in this series for such a time as this, four weeks, we've been looking uh, at the life of Esther. And uh, if you remember the first week, we talked about this very important date in their calendar, March the 7th. That was the day that wicked Haman had uh, caused the king to, to sign a decree stating that everyone in the whole province um, there would be put to death. If you're a Jew, you're gone. And so March 7th was that big day. So in chapter 9, verse 1, let's read that together. It says, so on March 7th, the two decrees, now I'll explain the second decree in a moment. But the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word today and challenge us. Um, as we open and look at the life of Esther, and Lord, as we consider that we also are here on this earth, Lord, in this critical time for such a time as this, I pray that we would understand our role, we would accept that role, and we would act on um, whatever it is that you call us to do. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the end of the story. The end of the story is they had hoped, the, the people around the Jewish people had hoped to attack the Jews and kill all the Jews on that, that very important day. Uh, but quite the opposite happened. It says that the Jews were actually the ones that were victorious then. Now, if you remember the story, and just give you a quick recap for those of you that weren't here for the four weeks, is we were in this series called For Such a Time as This, The Life of Esther. Esther was a Jewish girl, one of the captives taken into captivity, and after a new king conquered, I think Babylonian king, um, is when they carried him off into captivity. They were there a while, and then a new king comes into power, King Cyrus, and he allows many of the Jews to go home. And many of them went home, and they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls, and so it was really a good time for the Jews there, but many of the Jews did not go home. And so some of them stayed right where they're at, which is now modern-day Iran, 
but they stayed in their captive country. And so among these Jews were two that we've been looking at, Mordecai and Esther. Um, and as we know, the king had a, a, a queen named Vashti, and she disrespected him, and so it got her booted, and she's no longer the queen. And so they came up with this great idea to replace um, Queen Vashti with a new queen. And so all of these virgins in the territory were selected, and among those, uh, one of those was Esther, this Jewish girl, but no one knew her nationality at that moment. And so it says that the, the king loved Esther more than all the other girls, and so she becomes the queen. And now what we talked about is that God uses people. God is still in control, even when it doesn't feel like God's in control. Do you believe that this morning? Even though we're scratching our head, like, where is God in a time like this? You need to know God is in control. God is sovereign. He is in control. And what we looked at then is that God uses people um, in his plans. So God's in control. He's got his hand on everything that's going on, and he uses people in all of his plans. We looked at several examples of that fact that God uses people. And God was setting Esther in a position that she was going to be, need to be used by him at a later date, but not yet. So she becomes the queen, and all is going well until this villain comes on the scene. Who is it? Wicked Haman. The Bible says is the enemy of the Jews. He hated the Jews. There was a longstanding feud uh, between his ancestors and the Jewish people. And so he goes to the king and he tries to trick the king and say, hey, there's a group of people here that don't respect our rules and stuff and, and they need to just be wiped out. And so, and so the king goes along with it. He signs a decree. Now, a decree cannot be revoked. A decree that is signed, it just has to be fulfilled. And so this decree was signed. They cast lots and they discovered that on the day of the 7th on March of the following year that they would carry out this evil plot and they would kill all of the Jews. Guess what? Queen Esther is a Jew and king doesn't know it yet. King Xerxes. So, um, so that's kind of setting up this whole plot. And, and so, um, uh, hang on a second. Haman, get my names all messed up here. Haman decides he's going to, to annihilate the Jews. And he's kind of happy because he's going to get what he's wanted uh, for a while. So after all of the Jewish people hear what's going on, of course, you can imagine they were freaking out. They were scared. They were wondering what is going to happen to us. Somebody's got to do something. And so we see Esther elevated to this point, and this, this point where Mordecai goes to Esther, and he says, they're cousins, he says, Esther, you, you got to do something. Queen Esther says, you know, I can't go before the king. Nobody can go before the king without an invitation. He's already told me he won't see me for 30 days, so I can't go before the king. Um, and then Mordecai says those famous words, listen, Esther, if you don't do this, God will raise up someone. God uses people, Right? God will do it. He'll raise up someone that will deliver our people, but you and your family are going to die in this decree. You just got to know that. But, Esther, what if God's put you in this position? What if God has elevated you to the position of queen for such a time as this? We've been transitioning back and forth between her story and where we're at today, and I ask the question, you know, if God uses people, if God's still in control and he still uses people um, in his plan, the question is, is what is our role? What is my role? Have you ever considered that? Here we are in 2020. You got your job. You got your career. You're doing life. Have you ever just stopped and said, all right, God, what, what is my role? Why was I born now? Why am I on the earth now? Why do I have the family I have? Why do I have the job that I have, the career? Why am I here? What is my purpose? God uses people. What's your role? In the second week, we looked at this line that has been drawn. And, you know, there's this wicked plot to kill the Jews. There's a line between the good and the bad. And we talked about that line didn't start there in the story of Esther, but it goes all the way back 
In the Garden of Eden, even at the Garden of Eden, when God puts man and woman in the garden, the evil is already there, good and evil, right? Because it precedes that, it goes back to the fall of Satan. Satan is cast out of heaven, and so there's this line that has been drawn between good and evil, and they very simply were just a part of this thing that's been going on for forever. And now we find that there's this line that's been drawn, and we talked about in our lives, there's a line that's drawn. When you became a follower of Christ, um, you just need to know there's an enemy that wants to take you out. When you take a stand for what's right, just know that there's another side of that line that wants to uh, fight you and to push you away from that. And, and so the question was, what side of the line are you on? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I got some good news for you. You're on the right side of the line, and at the end of the book, we read it, we win. Amen? But if you've not placed your faith in Christ, you're already and still on the wrong side of the line. You could be a great person and be on the wrong side of the line. So at the end of the days, when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. We need to know, are we on the right side of the line? But I took it a step further and talked about followers of Christ. And as followers of Christ, sometimes we're on the, we are on the right side of the line, but we live our lives as though we're not. Our actions and our words look like we belong to the other side of the line. And so the challenge for us is to recognize, hey, there is some evil in the world, duh. But as followers of Christ, we're called to stand on the right side of the line and stand up for what is right. Amen? Are you with me so far? And so David last week talked about conviction matters and where conviction comes from. It's a biblical conviction or a worldly conviction. Convictions come from our parents, come from the circle of people that we run with, come from culture, and they always change. But there's this conviction that is a standard that never changes, and it's the, the biblical conviction, this biblical worldview. And last week we started um, a new Wednesday night teaching just kind of talking about some of our biblical worldviews. Why do we believe what we believe? Conviction matters, church, especially in our, our day-to-day. Conviction matters. Amen? And so you have this... Chapter 9, you have the end of the story where it all goes well, and you have chapter 3 where there's this wicked plot to take them all out. The question is, what happened between chapters 3 and chapter 9? Well, the easy answer is 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, but I won't go there, right? What happens between chapters 3 and chapter 9 is chapter 5. In short, somebody did something. Somebody stepped up in a big way because it all turned around between chapters 3 and chapters 9. So chapter 5, let's look into that quickly. It says, on the third day of the fast. Now, why were they fasting? They were fasting because they heard the news that Haman was wanting to kill all of the Jews. And as it got all throughout the province, everybody's just broken. They're humbled by that news. They're scared. And, and Mordecai's gone to Esther, and he said, Esther, you got to do something. You have got to go before the king. And she says, no one gets to go before the king and live unless he extends his golden scepter. Kind of weird, right? But he extends this scepter, and, and that's like a welcome. And he's already told me that he wouldn't see me for 30 days. And then, as I said, Esther, maybe God's put you here for such a time as this. And then in chapter 4, at the end of it, she calls for a fast. All right, I need you guys to do me a favor. Queen Esther says, no one eat anything or drink anything for three days. This is serious. We need God to intervene, and I want you all to pray for me. She says, my maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, what's against the law? To go before the king without an invitation, I will go. And I will see the king. If I perish, I must perish. If I die, I must die. Esther did something. Chapter 5, it says, on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. Stop. Cue the music. 
right? I mean, because this is a tense moment for Esther. She's going to go before the king. She knows that she's not supposed to without an invitation. And so she steps up huge in a, in a big way, a lot of courage. And she says, if I go, I must go. If, I'm, if I die, I must die. And she goes, say go. So there's action, right? She went. Somebody did something. Esther went before the king, not knowing what the outcome of that would be. Let me just tell you, it's risky sometimes when we stand on convictions and when we act on those convictions, there is a risk that is associated with that step of faith. There was for Esther. Verse 2, it says, when, the, when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her. And she went, Whew, right? He, he welcomed her. Um, it says in the inner court, he, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. I don't know what all that means, but that's just kind of weird. But that was just saying, hey, you're going to lift. You're good, right? You went before the king and you lift. Okay, so we got past one step, but how many know she's not done what she needs to do to secure the protection of the people yet? She's just simply gone before the king. So chapter 5 kind of plays out there, and it says, as the, as the king asked her, hey, what did you come for? What do you need? In verse 3, it says, he asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Pretty cool, right? What do you need, Esther? I'll give it to you, man, if it's up to half of the kingdom. And Esther replied, here's an opportunity. She had a chance. And scholars don't tell us why. I don't know why. We don't see in the story why, but she, she delayed. Because she didn't immediately tell the king what was going on. It says, um, if it please the king, she says, let the king and Haman, Haman's the enemy of the Jews, come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. The king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has required or requested. So the king, so the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to her again, now tell me what you really want, Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is up to half of the kingdom. She replies, this is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor in the king, or with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. So in short, she, we might say she chickened out. We might say, why did she, she had the opportunity, she had the king's ear, she was welcomed into his presence. This is the time to say what's going on, and she didn't do it. Why? We don't know. What we do know is her delay gave us the opportunity to see what happens over one night. Just say one day. A lot of things can change in one day, right? So she, she um, waits, and ha uh, Haman left that little banquet really happy because he got invited by king and queen to a banquet. And he walks outside, and he sees Mordecai's enemy, and he hates him. And he's so filled with rage and anger that he wants to kill Mordecai. And so some of his people, Mordecai, some of his people said, hey, let's, let's just crucify him, put up a pole. So he erected a 75-foot pointed pole. Some of your Bibles will say to hang Haman on, but he wanted to impel Haman on this pole. And that was his plan. So he was happy because tomorrow Mordecai, Mordecai is going to be gone. And so that night, as David talked about last week, the king couldn't sleep. So while Haman was happy, the king was having a hard time sleeping, and the king said, bring me the royal records and read that to me because that'll put anyone to sleep, right? And they were good at taking records, they were good at all this stuff, and they just happened to bring the record that would recognize Mordecai's heroic act when he spoiled a plot to assassinate the king. And so now the king recognizes, I never did anything for Mordecai. 
what should we do? And he goes to Haman, what should we do? Haman, as David said last week, was thinking, oh, he's talking about me. What do I do to somebody I love and I want to honor? And so Haman puts this big old thing out there, and, and the king says, okay, great. Everything you did, don't leave anything out. Do that for Mordecai. Oh, if you're Haman, don't you just hate that? So Haman does that. That's one night. So Mordecai is honored. Haman is about to fall big time. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. This is the second time. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, queen. Esther, what is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Here's her chance. Here's an opportunity for her to make a difference. You know, chapter 3 is still very real. Chapter 9 is in the future. What goes on between those two? Somebody has to do something, and Esther steps up. Verse 3, she said, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. King Xerxes is like, well, duh, you're the queen. Of course, nobody's going to harm you, right? He doesn't know yet that she is a, a Jew. He says, who would do such a thing? Who would want to harm the queen? King Xerxes demanded, who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Because you're my favorite. Who would do such a wicked thing? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Don't you know that the blood in Haman's body fell all the way to his toes at that very moment? Uh-oh, it's been exposed, right? Who would do such a thing? It's that guy right there, Haman. So the king becomes furious, so mad that he goes out of the room. While he's out of the room, Haman, knowing that he is dead meat, throws himself at Esther, begging for his life. The king comes back in and sees this, and he thinks, what, are you going to attack her now in my presence? And they covered his head, which signaled his doom. He's going to die. And you know how God uses people at just a certain time when the king was, what am I going to do with him? Another person says, hey, um, Haman erected a 75-foot pole out in his yard to impel Mordecai on. The king says, all right, do that to Haman. And so you see this pivotal moment when everything changes for the Jewish people. And the big idea is this. Somebody did something. So last week, David talked about conviction and how conviction matters. And it does. But can I tell you that conviction alone is not enough, that we need to move on those convictions? That we need to act on our convictions? See, if she would have just felt bad, if she would have just said, hey, this is terrible, and we need to pray, and we need to fast, but she didn't go to the king and didn't take that risk, how I many you know we might not be reading the book of Esther today? We might be reading somebody else's name that was heroic um, in that time. But because she acted in courage and she acted on her convictions, she went on behalf of the children of Israel. And we read the end of the story and we're like, wow, how cool is it to see people step up in a big way? You know, she's not the only one throughout Scripture who stepped up when needed. She's not the only one that acted on their convictions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 you know, they had this golden statue, and everyone was required to stop and, and bow to that statue. And these three young Hebrew men, knowing what the law said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't, don't bow before any false gods. They said, we can't do it. We won't do it. And they said, God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That's courage, right? Daniel chapter 6, for 
The next 30 days, they were trying to trap him, and they said, okay, for the next 30 days, king, here's what you need to do. Have everyone in the land pray only to you for 30 days. No other deity, no other false gods. Nobody prays to anybody but you. And it says that Daniel, like he had always done, he went up to his upper room after he heard that decree, and he opens his windows, not to be arrogant and to flaunt it, but as he always did, and he prayed to his God three times a day. Of course, he got caught, and we know the story, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. That takes courage, amen? To go against a, a decree like that, it takes courage. Or how about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 when they're arrested for preaching the gospel? I mean, God's tearing his place up through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Peter and John are seeing God act, and they're just going everywhere, and they get in prison. They get jailed for a while, and they're trying to shut them down, and so they, they tell Peter and John, hey, you can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. It sounds like we've heard that before, even in our times, right? You, you can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and Peter and John boldly says, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everything that we have seen and heard. You can't shut us up. That's courage. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. You know, you're scared to go skydiving, but you go skydiving anyway. That's courage. John Wayne says, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Uh-huh. As, as Christians, I believe that we need um, three things in this season. Number one is a commitment to Scripture. And when I say a commitment to Scripture, it's like, hey, what does God's Word say? I want to live my life. I want to get to know what God's Word says, and I want to be committed to God's Word because this is God's love language. It's his map for life, right? It's the operation manual, and I think that we need to be committed to Scripture. It's the final word, amen? It's not just an extra word, but it's the final word. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to realize this is it. God's Word is authority, and we need to be committed to it. We also need to be committed to the construction of biblical convictions. David spoke of convictions last week, but the construction, like building a house, you're going to grab many different resources, and we need to be committed to building biblical conviction. And as David mentioned last week, and I'll repeat, is we get that from our parents, we get that from culture, society, all these different people groups. But what we need to do as followers of Christ is pull our resources from the authority of God's word, amen, and build, construct, biblical conviction, a biblical worldview, right? A commitment to Scripture, commitment to building a biblical conviction, building our convictions on God's Word. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I don't, I don't believe that, and you, you've read it in God's Word, and you're saying, I just can't go against that because God said it, therefore I, I mean, that settles it, right? And if God said it, then I've got to, as a follower of Christ, I'm committed to his word, and my convictions come from there, so no thank you. I think I'll do what I feel like is the right thing to do, and I'm going to honor God's word. And the third thing that we need, especially today, especially today, is the courage to act on those convictions. It took great courage for Esther to step out. It took great courage for her to go before the king and to, to speak on behalf of God's people, but it was her Conviction, it was her courage that, that moved and changed the outcome. What went from the people of God being victims on March 7th to being victorious on March 7th. Amen? Somebody did something. She acted on her convictions. I mentioned that there was another decree um, 
Quickly, he, he recognized, the king recognized that a, a decree that has been set into motion can't be undone. And so what Mordecai, now that he's elevated into the highest position, says, okay, give me your signet ring just like you gave Haman and let me go out and, and make a new decree. And so the king says, you do whatever you want to do, Mordecai, and I'll stand behind it. And so a second decree was put into place for that day that basically said, hey, Jews, you're targets. But you don't have to be targets. You can defend yourself. You can fight for your families. And, and you, can, you can put up for yourself, right? Stand up for yourself. So that decree also went into um, to, to place. And so March 7th, that day comes. And while the people that were the enemies of the Jews would love to annihilate and get rid of all of the Jews, something else was there. There was a little bit of courage on behalf of the Jewish people. And there was a permission that they could defend themselves. And we, we read the story. It was quite the opposite that happened. And God miraculously took care of his people, as he always does. Amen? So in the Talmud, which is a scriptures that the, the Jewish people use, the rabbinical, traditional uh, Jewish people, filled with you know, theology and just civil law and stuff like that, but there's one phrase in there I think is, is our big idea today, and that is this. The act, they act. The act is the main thing. It doesn't matter what we, we believe. I mean, it matters, but if we just stop there, then it's kind of like that phrase I use all the time. I'll modify it today. Unapplied conviction is like unapplied paint. It doesn't do anybody any good. So you need to paint a house, and you go to the store, and you buy the gallon of paint or whatever it is you get. You know, unapplied paint doesn't do any good. It's just in the, in the it's not been applied yet. And the same thing is true of conviction. The same thing is true of faith and of trust. It's like unapplied conviction. If we just are convicted, but we don't do anything with that conviction, it doesn't do any good. Somebody needs to do something. Two uh, quick references. One of them is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he closes it by saying, okay, there was a wise builder and a foolish builder. And both of these builders built a house. One of them built it without a foundation. The other one built it with a foundation. Rains came down. The floods came up. And the waves and the wind begin to beat against the house. And the, and, and the foolish builder that did not build on a solid foundation, it says his house crashed with a great crash. But the wise builder that built his house on the rock, it says the rain, the waves, all that happened. But his house stood firm. Why? Because it was on a solid foundation. Now Jesus goes on to interpret that parable. And I think it's very key for us today. And he says, anyone who hears these teachings of mine, and we have to take the extra step, and does what it says. Anyone who hears these teachings of mine and puts them into practice, that's, that's action, right? Is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. That was Jesus. James puts it this way. James 1, says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. How I many you know action is important? Not being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. Later in chapter 2, in chapter 2 of James, it says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Faith is the Greek word pistis, and it means a strong confidence and reliance upon someone or something. I asked you a while ago, if you believe God's word is authority, and, and I do. And so in essence, I can say, you know, I have a strong faith in God's word. I believe in God's word, a strong conviction in it. And he says, what good it is, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, let's just change that word quickly to conviction. 
It's a confidence in God's word, right? What good is it if you say you have conviction and you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of conviction save anyone? Can it make a difference? Can it do anything? Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So do you hear me, church, saying that it's not what we know, but it's what we do with what we know that matters? Let me say it again for those of you in the back. No offense to those of you in the back, but do you hear me saying that it's not what we know about God's word, but it's what we do with God's word that matters? And so we know that God is in control. God uses people. What's your role? We know that there's a line that's been drawn between good and evil. The question is, what side of the line are you on? And we know that conviction matters, but we can't stop with conviction alone. We have to move on those convictions. I gave you examples in the Bible. Here's a couple more. Melissa and Aaron Klein. How many know that name? Bringing it to our day and age, Melissa and Aaron Klein are a, a couple who live over in Oregon who had a little bakery called Sweet Cakes. Many of you know the story now. Their convictions were that they, they, they as Christians, didn't feel like they um, would be able to. They just like, I don't feel right with making a cake for a lesbian couple. You know, we re- reserve the right to refuse anyone. You see that sign everywhere, but not in Oregon. Because they refused to do that based on their convictions, they could have just made the cake. And let it all be done with. But they stood on their convictions. They said, we just can't do it. We're not judging. We just don't feel like we can do this. They were judged, or they were fined $135,000, and they were forced to close down their story. It cost them dearly, but I mean, no, that's courage. Or how about Pastor Jack Traber? I think this is how you say his last name. North Valley Baptist Church. This one, this one struck, struck close to home for me. They're in Santa Clara, California. And they had a cease and desist order from their local government that said they have to shut down church. How many know in the middle of a pandemic, we don't need to shut down the church. We need people in the church. And I I get the whole social distancing, being careful with that. But there was something more sinister going on and still is in some areas. And I believe it's time for us, the church, to gather, to pray, to worship our God. Amen. And so because he refused to give in to um, what he felt like was an unfair mandate in his um, state, he was fined over $100,000. I don't remember how much per service they were fined and fined and fined and fined. And finally, he decided, you know what, I'm going to let God fight our battles, but we're going to move the church outside, which they're still having church, but they moved it outside. But, I mean, you know, it takes courage to stand. It takes courage to stand. Over and over and over, you see different examples of people who had these convictions and they stood on their convictions. I was thinking this week about um, Jehovah's Witnesses, and I've always admired their willingness to go door to door. I, mean, I don't know very many Christians that are that committed, right? But they believe in what they believe so strongly that they'll go knock on your door. How many of you had a knock on your door, right? That's, that's acting on convictions. How about the Muslims? I mean, they believe what they believe so strongly that they're willing to strap bombs around them or get on planes and do some pretty wicked stuff. They're acting on their convictions. And can I just tell you, church, it's time we as followers of Christ also act out on our convictions. I said years ago, with everybody coming out of the closet, it's time for Christians to come out of the closet. Why? Because the Bible says that we are salt and we're the light. What is salt? Salt preserves. Salt enhances the flavor of it. And so where you and I are at, whatever it is, whether it's at work or school or in our culture or politics, whatever, we, as followers of Christ, he says we're salt, and so we are to have an influencing effect on those around us, right? But he also says that we're the light. What does the light do? It dispels darkness. Have you ever been in a room so dark 
You stick your hand in front of your face and you can't see your hand. And yet you can light a match, something so small, and it will it'll dispel the darkness enough for you to see a little ways, right? I got a cool headlamp that, that'll bright. I went in an attic that was pitch black, and you turn it on, it's like daylight in there. I'm like, that's, we're called to be light. Light dispels darkness. Christians, we're at this place and time for such a time as this. It's time for us to be people of influence. Let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and then glorify God. The time is now. Amen? The time is now for us as Christians to act on our convictions. You know, sometimes we're worried about what people think or what might happen to us if we do that. And so we give up some of our freedoms for our safety. Like, hey, just go along. Just go along because everybody's going to get along and we won't get in trouble. And so we give up a little bit of freedom, a little bit of freedom, a little bit of freedom. And before you know it, we lose a lot of that freedom for temporary safety. Ben Franklin said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. We as followers of Christ need to realize that we're here on this earth and God still uses people. And so, let me say, Shane, what does that look like? Listen, if it needs to be said, say it, but say it in love. Amen? If it needs to be done, do it, but do it in love. But, 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 but don't sit back and just, hey, God, please do something. He says, hey, you're, you're my hands and you're my feet. You do something. Because he's put us here for such a time as this. And we have so much influence. I was reading somewhere else that said the United States, I think about 70% of the, the, the United States identifies Christians. You know what that means? That's power. If Christians act. It's like, why, why are we talking about this? Well, guess what? Tuesday opens up early election in our country for Texas. Tuesday, we get to go to the voting booth. You know, the cool thing about voting is nobody knows what you vote. You can tell one person one thing and go inside and pull the lever for somebody totally different, but God knows. And as followers of Christ, I've always said, my conviction is that we as Christians need to vote our values. We need to vote Christian values. Are you with me? And so sometimes as Christians, we're on the right side of the line, but we vote in a way that's like, where are we coming from? Here's my conviction. I cannot with a clear conscience vote for a platform that is completely contradictory to God's word. Never will, won't do it, not in a million years, not going to do it. Well, what are you talking about, Shane? Listen, I don't want to get too political, but the abortion debate has been going on forever and ever and ever. And can I just tell you that God called it a life, and that's the way we stand on it here. Is it a life? It's a life. Now, does it mean that there's no forgiveness for those who've walked through that? I've met people, and this is Shane. I've, I, I was forced to do that at an early age. Listen, God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, and we can go forward from that, and he, he can forgive for those things. But we as Christians need to realize that that life is precious to God, and I will not stand with a platform that says, hey, I'm cool with annihilating that life one minute before it's born. So sue me. That's my conviction. This sexual crisis I mean, now we get age fluidity, so as a 50-year-old man, if I feel like I identify with an 8-year-old and somehow that makes it okay, can I just tell you, that's wicked, it's wrong, and I can't in clear conscience stand for that, and I won't vote for that. Do you see where I'm going? Voting our convictions? Listen, that's between you and God, but my challenge to you as a follower of Christ is don't sit on the sidelines. Hey, we got this, it's all cool. No, no, it's time for us to stand. Well, Shane, Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Uh Uh-uh. Daniel was very involved in the political climate he was in. Joseph was very involved in the political climate he was in. Esther was absolutely involved in the political climate she was in. Christians, I don't think we get a pass. 
We are citizens of the kingdom of God first, and we're citizens of the, of the United States of America, and we are God's people. And what if, what if God has put us here for such a time as this? Listen, we're going to leave the results in his hand, right? We trust him, but what if he's put us here for such a time as this? I would say, you know what, let's rise to the occasion. Let's recognize that God uses people, let's act on it, and let's go. Let's go in Jesus' name. Pray with me. Father, I, I pray for courage. I pray for conviction. I pray that you would wake us up from our slumber. For those of us who've kind of played on the wrong side of the line and we've given into some things that we know are contrary to your word, God, would you please bring conviction? Knowing that you're a forgiving God and your mercy is new every morning, God, would you help us to see things from your word, even though it may seem archaic to a tolerant, in quote, society that's tolerant of everything except the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you give us courage to stand for what we believe in your word? God, would you let us rise up and would you let us make a difference in our families, in our workplaces, and in the voting booth to vote? Our values and God, we put the results on you. Lord, that if we do our part, we're going to trust you with the outcome. And Lord, if you allow it to go one way, we're just going to trust that you allowed it. But Father, I, I still believe you love us and I, I still believe there's hope for our country today. And God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would, would use us as Christians to stand up, to not sit on the sidelines, to not be scared of COVID-19. Wear two masks and go to the, bowl, the, 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 the booth and cast your vote. Father, I pray that you would just help us to have courage today to step up and to make our mark, knowing that unapplied conviction is like unapplied pain. It doesn't do any good. Father, help us to act on what we believe. Give us the courage. The time is now. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.